another episode of Intrigue Explained. I'm Dmitry Grosvinsky from Explain Trade. And I am John Fowler from International Intrigue. We only rehearsed that three or four times, so hopefully that came out smooth. Supernatural. Oh, we're just it's it's the connection that really makes this podcast <laughs> for our for our listeners. On this ex-diplomats debate edition of the show, we are going to be tackling a fairly thorny topic about whether the West should engage in checkbook diplomacy. As always, we'll be taking two different sides of the issue, not necessarily the ones that we personally believe, and just trying to get to the bottom of it and have a really good discussion. We're also going to be covering our own stories of the week, things that International Intrigue, the incredible free newsletter you should all sign up to, covered, that we believe are important. I am going to take a look at what's been going on with Wagner Group, something that we have dedicated an entire episode to on the show in the past, and specifically Prigozhin's adventures with Ukrainian intelligence, as reported in the Washington Post, I believe. And John, you're going to be taking a look at an election roundup from around the world, some really interesting things happening democratically. And then we'll get to our main story. But before we do that, uh, John, I'm, I know this is something you folks are covering. President Biden has canceled his trip to the Asia-Pacific. He has bailed on our Prime Minister, Albo. Do you think the rational reaction the is just for Australia to immediately leave NATO and join BRICS? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Mm. Leave, leave NATO, not that we're in it, but, you know, in, leave NATO anyway. Announce that we're leaving NATO yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then join the, the BRICS. The Americans exactly. don't know we're not in it. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. They'll be shocked. I mean, I think, you know, okay, let me, let me take the serious little angle first. And I think it's, it's, it's not great that, um, a fairly, I mean, it's not stupid because obviously the debt ceiling, if it goes pear shaped is, is terrible. It's a serious, serious issue. The the context here is he's, is he's not coming in order to stay in DC and talk the Republicans out of crashing the global economy by not extending the U.S. debt uh, limit. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny because, I, I mean, not to talk U.S. politics, but it seems pretty clear that the Republicans want to deal directly with the president rather than, you know, other House leaders and all that kind of stuff. Presumably because dealing with the president gives them extra cachet or whatever to negotiate a deal. But the as you just mentioned, the reality is that means he has to... He has cancelled um, his trip to PNG, which would have been the first ever for a sitting US president, which is, you know, a pretty big deal. I know that, um, you know, I know that the country was kind of really amping up for this for a long time. And then he's also cancelled the quad meeting in Sydney um, and will head straight back home after the, the G7 um, in Tokyo, which he's heading to or Japan might not be Tokyo. Uh, he's heading that to there today, but uh, actually we, we had a conversation. One of the best things about running a newsletter with, you know, we're up over 50,000 readers now is that we get incredible comments from folks who are in the places that we're talking about every day. And we got one from uh, someone who runs a business in PNG, an Australian guy who runs a business in PNG. And he was like, it's kind of interesting on the ground. Like, you know, everyone's pretty annoyed that they put a lot of work into, and Dimitri, you know, damn well how much work goes into a US presidential visit. We're talking like 747s that fly in weeks ahead to like scope out security and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, no. Genuinely tens of millions of, if not more dollars go into advancing um, the president's trips. Um, and that's before you get to the, you know, the PNG side of costs. Um, but people were annoyed about that. But I think he, this guy told us that he said, you know, 
the, the environment seems to be in Port Moresby that they're kind of like, oh, well, like we're not that upset. And, you know, we're waiting for the, ne- there's a potential that Modi might go um, in the future. And they're like, oh, well, we'll welcome him then. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like perhaps some of the people who like we reported that are very upset about it tend to be the Australians who are kind of like, what does this say about America's engagement in our region? Holy shit, where we've prefaced most of our defense and foreign policy on America being more engaged in the region. Is this a sign of them not actually caring that much? I, I don't know, but it's, it's just, it's just kind of, it's just kind of absurd really. I think the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, for us, I guess for us, it's like the U S has announced about 32 pivots to Asia. Every administration talks about it. They're constantly referencing it, but decisions like this, even when they're made for domestic reasons, can't help but be read through the lens of are you still fundamentally looking at your own backyard first and foremost to what extent is your engagement with Asia and especially the non I suppose the the countries in Asia that don't get as much focus in international relations when it comes to the US so you know okay you're thinking about China a lot you're talking to Japan a lot but countries like Papua New Guinea who maybe aren't at the forefront are key to a true Asia Pacific pivot, and this isn't a great yeah. look. And I think, and I think from the Australian side, I mean, obviously speaking as both Australians, we, I think, our Pacific policy has long been to go, "Hey, America, you need to engage more in this area. Like, you know, reopen your Solis embassy, come and do more. Like, China's knocking on the door, and like, you know, it's it's a serious issue. We kind of." convinced ourselves that they they are going to do more and and maybe they will but it's just kind of not a great signal that a, a fairly manufactured crisis is is kind of stopping stopping that i think i think yeah i mean i don't, you don't want to read too much into this stuff because it's kind of out out of the president's hands in a way that mm-hmm. like it doesn't necessarily reflect his administration's priorities but it goes more broadly to being like is the us able to be reliable because they're so um, there's so many different I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word dysfunctional, but just kind of like, there are so many different things going on in their domestic system is like, can you ever really rely on them to get a moment where they can focus on anything else but themselves? I don't know. Yeah. And I guess the last thing to say is it does speak to sort of the US centrality in the world, and especially now thinking about the world, that a cancelled visit triggers an entire wave of introspection, at least in, in Australia, about, oh my God, where do we stand in the world? You know, fundamentally, know. what was this visit actually going to... There there weren't going to be big policy outcomes. It wasn't going to be... It's not a massive investment. He wasn't there to open a massive new military base. He was going to turn up, say hi, kind of engage in some diplomacy and leave. And we're all treating it as if it's the end of Western civilization. Um, yep. A useful reminder of, I think, just how closely we have tethered our fates to the United States. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, a United States that will always, first and foremost, look in its own backyard. Yeah, I think that's right. My story of the week, something that I wanted to, to talk about. We have been following the adventures of the Wagner Group and its chieftain... Yevgeny Adventures. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. <laughs> Trials and tribulations. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. A private military company that has found itself as 
almost effectively the sole vaguely competent element of the Russian armed forces when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. That is the tip of the spear when it comes to Russian foreign policy from Syria all the way down through Africa. That is hugely involved in the messy trials and tribulations of the Kremlin's internal dynamics as a counterweight Mm. to the generals, but also a counterweight to the Chechen warlord uh, Kadyrov that has this strange relationship with Putin. It is a saga that has like allegories to Game of Thrones, except everybody's kind of pathetic and not very fun to look at. Yeah, before you get onto the guts of the story, why do you think everyone knows about the Wagner Group now? Is it because Prigozhin is just like such a outspoken kind of fellow on social media that he doesn't sort of go through the normal channels of communications? He's like communicating directly with people. Um, I know like Kadyrov used to do that a lot more than he does, seems to do now. I wonder why that is. Like why the the Chechens, um, or I shouldn't say the Chechens, I should Mm -hmm. say the Kadyrovites or whatever you call them, um, they seem to be not particularly in the news cycle, but they are kind of, again, they're not a private military contractor, but they're oh, kind yeah. of like that, right? Like they oh, kind of operate as a little like, re- like a little force militia. that Putin controls at arm's length. Basically out of his own pocket. Right. So are we, are, is, is the difference between the two like effectiveness? The Katarovites got routed and they stink now and the Wagner's kind of okay? So or I think what's the difference? The, Vag- the Wagner group has always been a lot more media savvy than a lot of the other actors. They have built a mythology around themselves. They have this way of that they they talk about themselves in this cutesy way where they refer to themselves as musicante, like musicians, or refer to the organization as the orchestra. Uh, so the Kadyrov's band of thugs are like a clan in Chechnya. Effectively, they recruit inside Chechnya from like, uncles and nephews and it's a more traditional local militia whereas wagner has always been a private military company first and foremost yes they recruit almost exclusively kind of russian speakers firstly because they want to be able to communicate but they have always been effectively had to market themselves in order to both get clients but also to get experienced fighters to come and join them It's important to remember that before they started Mm. effectively dragooning prisoners and criminals from prisons in tens of thousands, they were a much smaller, more elite company of actual former soldiers, Um, which, you know, in a Russian context Mm. where there's conscription, a lot of people have been through the army, it's not as hard, but they had to market themselves and make themselves cool. Like an employer, yeah. Exactly. And so they had a really robust social media operation. They had active telegram channels and still do that kind of follow them around and promote everything they do. Uh, So they were always good at that side of it when sort of the Russian military ministry of defense wasn't as good. And Kadyrov, his guys love to make TikToks of themselves firing weapons at nothing. And wearing gold Rolexes and stuff, right? Yeah, but it's all just, it's its all very campy. And it's also just not clear that they've been remotely effective. The, the Wagner yeah. guys have taken territory. Not that much and at huge loss, but they have adopted some combat doctrines that have been of some effectiveness. So, so why is he in the news at the moment? Why is old mate Prigozhin in the news at the moment? So one of the Discord leaks 
that have now been traced back to this. Oh, to M and to Sherry. Exactly. One of those leaks has been reported in the Washington Post that basically cites U.S. intelligence saying that Prigozhin was in active communication with Ukrainian intelligence trying to do deals where he was offering that if the Ukrainians were willing to pull out of Bakhmut and let his guys take it, in exchange, he would leak to Ukrainian intelligence the exact position of the Russian forces in the area so that the Ukrainians could nail it with artillery (laughs) and just kill a bunch of the conventional Russian troops and kind of, you know... So that the the goals of the Ukrainians in sort of bleeding the Russian army in Bakhmut would be achieved at the expense of the Russian, the conventional Russian army, rather than Wagner. Okay, so I, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. So my brain immediately skips to two reasons. One, it's complete disinformation. Like, you know, don't trust these people as far as you can, you know, throw them, that kind of stuff. Or is this just like such an example of like the split between the PMC, mm. like Wagner Group's um, goals and the Russian army goals. Like he doesn't care what happens to the Russian army. He just cares about how he looks like. What, what, where do you come down on that? Well, as we always say with spooky stuff, right? We'll never know because... Who knows? So basically yeah. what Kiev is saying, well, Kiev's refusing to comment on the story. What the leak said is that Kiev didn't think he was for real and so said no. No, you could never take him seriously. You could never like risk that. I mean, that's where I sort of come down on it as well. I would also say it's not necessarily a fair exchange. And, you know, how would you know that what he's giving you is real and, you know, you don't make these kind of deals. What we also don't know is whether this is at all true or just masterful Mm. disinformation. The fact that we're having this debate suggests that if it is disinformation, it's very good. Because, like, you know, if you leak... It makes you think, right? It absolutely does, especially because these guys are all vipers and they're all incredibly paranoid. Mm. Like, we don't Mm. know much about Putin's inner character, but he is a paranoid son of a bitch. And Prigozhin hasn't, in, in recent, you know, in recent days and weeks, the context to this is that Prigozhin has been coming closer and closer, and depending on how you interpret some of the more oblique things he says, to directly criticizing Putin instead of just waging a rhetorical war with the Russian defense minister Shogu and Gerasimov, the chief of their armed forces, in order to try to get his guys Mm. more ammunition. But he has become more and more a strident critic. It is, I mean, the thing about this, the thing about the story and about the whole Prigozhin saga is, is it is so insane that the army that was considered the second best in the world is now this melodrama of feuding warlords and like, army detachments that won't talk to the detachment in the dugout next door that call in artillery on each other it's just it is you would have never believed it yeah i i was gonna say and you know i know very little about military matters at that level but it's hard to imagine the u.s army no matter how bad things were going like having these kinds of public battles with eric prince of blackwater or you know any of their other kind of pmcs that they have it would it would not it just i just can't imagine that it would happen Uh, and remember you know when when petraeus gave an interview that was critical of the commander-in-chief was critical of i think it was obama and some yeah, of Obama was, era's yeah. politics, a U.S. general who was in many ways the, the golden child. He was critical. That was the end mm-hmm. of his military career. 
Yep. Um, he was immediately stood down. Yep. And I mean, even I think to some extent, he kind of went, yeah, okay, fair like fair enough. Yeah, I mean, you lose faith, right? Like you can't, if you, if you feel like that way, you're not going to execute my orders. So, you know, no harm, no foul, but you obviously have no job here. Exactly. And he did it in a sort of sit down interview with a journalist. He didn't go and record a like periscoped YouTube live <laughs> with a bunch of his masked <laughs> troops behind him with like a rap diss track, like, which is where oh, we're no. at with Pregotten. I mean, it's not funny, but it's absurd, oh, right? It's, it's, it's not funny, and yet it's really funny, it has been a lot of the Russian performance in this war so far. So it's a good place to leave it. And I might throw it to you, John, mm. for the next part of our podcast and the election roundup from around the world. This week, I think, we mentioned it last week that Turkey had their election you know, coming up and obviously they had it over the weekend. And I think it was, it, it bears mentioning again because of the results. Obviously, President Erdogan got about 49.4%, I think, or, so, or something like that. Um, not quite a majority, which would have given him the presidency outright. The, you know, the summary of that is there will be an, a, a re, like a, a runoff election. So the top two candidates, the opposition leader and, and Erdogan on uh, May 28th, so 10 days from now. Um, and then whoever wins that election becomes president. I think a couple of things to note. Erdogan massively outperformed the polls. I think the smart geopolitical watchers of Turkey, and I think even we said it last week, uh, said that be careful about that. Polls in Turkey, you know, we, we have no idea knowing how accurate they are, whether they're accurate or inaccurate. And Erdogan has spent 20 years kind of tilting the field, you know, free, I think I described it as freeish and fairish elections, but, you know, he's tilted the field to kind of, give himself the the home court advantage as it mm -hmm. were and that clearly has paid off um it, i think everyone expects him now to win that runoff in in 10 days time except for there are a couple of out you know you put it at maybe 90 percent because there's a couple of things that might come into play the first being the idea that you know that the the, the, the third party candidate who's kind of split the vote um, and, and prevented Erdogan getting 50% is super right-wing, even further right-wing or further authoritarian and nationalist than, um, than Erdogan is. So oh, good. <laughs> people are assuming that his votes will go to Erdogan so that that's why they're saying he'll win. But I heard a Turkish analyst who knows a lot about this stuff kind of wondering that it, Tur Turkey's uh, sorry, Erdogan's party also massively outperformed in the parliament, which means they have a lot of power in parliament. And he was wondering whether that, the Turkish folks might sort of see that result in parliament and go, okay, well, the, the, the alliance that Erdogan leads has pretty much unchecked power in parliament. Maybe we should check the power by voting for the opposition leader. I don't think that's super likely, to be honest mm. with you, but it, you know, it is something that suggests that you know, it's not over yet. It's not over until the fat lady sings uh, in 10 days' time. Two things that kind of jumped out at me this week about that election that I thought were interesting is, first of all, the opposition leader who he will be in a runoff against, whose name I am also not brave enough to try to pronounce. I've spent a week learning how to do it. It's Kalitsteroglu. <laughs> Kalitsteroglu, there you go. There you go. He came out and he gave a speech where he said that if he wins, he is going to throw out of the country all of the refugees that are currently yeah. in it. Now, I don't know how much of a, how possible that even is logistically or sort of morally or electorally, but it is impossible to overstate how huge an event that would be, both from a sort of moral and the perspective of these people's lives. But Turkey houses probably more refugees at this point than most of the West put together. Yeah. Syria is still not a place these guys can probably return to. 
which has all sorts of implications, but obviously for them, but for geopolitics, everyone remembers what happened to politics the last time. There was a large surge of refugees from this area, and it wasn't necessarily pretty. So that's one thing that jumped out at me. And to that question of, you know, is would would his election mean a restoration of, you know, left-wing liberalism in Turkey? Well, not on this issue, certainly. So that's one thing I wanted to flag. The other one was I thought there was a really interesting kind of dynamic around Twitter and the Turkish government... The yeah. Turkish government effectively asked Twitter to censor certain types of posts around the election. Some would argue the most supportive of the opposition. And the threat was, if you don't do it, we will simply shut off Twitter in the country. And the decision by Elon Musk and Twitter's leadership was to acquiesce with a fairly strained logic which kind of went, well, the alternative is nobody would get any tweets and it's not an undemocratic violation of freedom of speech because they would be doing it under a law that a democratically elected government passed, which, you know, we could do a whole show ranting about that. But Well, I think I was, I was about to say, I was about to say this is an issue that I think there's a lot in and particularly going forward as countries start to exert their influence over these tech companies that have hitherto run the run all over the world pretty roughshod but i think it's a it's a separate um debate maybe we can have that in the coming weeks because it's a super inter- interesting observation I think. but definitely something to, something to follow um you know we may be looking at a situation yeah. where the chinese firewall may not be the only one i think that's exactly right yeah i think that's exactly right um and very briefly uh, so that's the turkey um election we, we might touch on it again once the once the results are known mm. uh, uh, in the runoff and just kind of think about whoever wins what what that might mean um but the other election that happened over the weekend that in many ways kind of flew a bit further under the radar was the Thai election very briefly the the summary of that is that a, a young harvard educated fairly progressive for southeast asia probably for anywhere really but for southeast asia in particular dom like won the election or his his kind of coalition of aligned parties did really really well in the election and the ruling party which is again i wouldn't say massively conservative per se but much more pro military pro monarchy in thailand they lost for the for the first time since two, since they were founded in 2007 and and it's an interesting it's it's really what it, what i think it says it's a rebuke from the Thai people of the military junta that's obviously ruled since 2014. I say ruled that has basically controlled Thai politics since mm-hmm. 2014. And it's a bit of a rebuke of the weird Thai monarchy, which has some of the strongest, you know, anti-defamation mm-hmm. or les majeste rules in the world. I think you can see that Thai, Thai folks, particularly young Thais, look around at the world and look around at the way their country is organized. And Thailand is, you know, a pretty successful country in that region. It's, it's, you know, got a pretty, you know, pretty strong economy, um, you know, has its problems. But when you look at over the border to Myanmar, where mm-hmm. you've got another military hunter ruling, it's uh, night and day. And I think the young folks in Thailand are looking around saying, I don't think this is how we want our future to be decided by a coup, a military junta, a party that kind of acquiesces to that. So I thought it was a really interesting, really interesting result. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to try to imagine what is going to increasingly happen in some of these democracies and not so much democracies as their populations get younger in in contrast to ours in the West, which have tended to age over time. Uh, as our birth rates have been lower, they've got a lot of young people coming of age in a digital, having grown up in a digital era where they can see alternative models, where they can see alternative models that are good and some that are not so good. 
and that are increasingly beginning to find their voice. And of course, there's no guarantee that that goes in a positive direction, or even that this party goes in a universally positive direction. But it's uh, it's it's interesting to watch, and there's cause for optimism and hope. I think. Yeah, and I think to your point at the end, it's a very important point to make, because even in this situation where there was a pretty overwhelming demonstration of what the Thai folks want, there's, I mean, not to get too detailed about it, but Thailand also has a Senate or a, you know, a second house that needs to um, approve or elect the the new, the new leader mm-hmm. of the country. And that is almost entirely controlled by the military junta. So this, this, this guy who's, his name is Peter. I'm going to try and pronounce it. I've, I, I learned it and then I've forgotten it, but I'll try again. It's Peter Limjarowanrat, I think, I think. Um, this is the 42-year-old guy who, you know, ostensibly won the election. He needs to actually find an extra 66 votes from this body that is controlled by the military junta. So there's also, you know, to your point, who we after all of this, we may not even get him as the new leader of Thailand. He he may not be able to do it because of the military junta and the and the control they still exert. So yeah, I think I think I think it's a good place to leave it by saying it's it's encouraging signs that people are looking to have a different future, but just how strong the grip of the existing power structures is on power is is something that I think you you know it's it's hard to determine. We'll see. Yeah, and I, I guess my last little point on that one, and then we'll move on to our main story, mm. is that I think back to the Anyan Suchi story you mentioned, Myanmar. Yeah, and that I think we should all also always just be cautious and listen to what people are saying and what they are doing rather than just projecting onto someone who is fits fits our mold of a young democratic activist all of the policies and positions we hope that they have uh An Suji is it's a really complicated story but there were certainly aspects of her politics that she was very open about when it comes to to the Kachin and others that we just kind of ignored in our euphoria over her her rise to power. So I think it's yep. it's just open. Treat these people with the respect that is to listen what their actual positions are and see how they act once they're in power, rather than creating caricatures and in- infusing them with our hopes and dreams. Amen place i think speaking of hopes and dreams to move on to my dream of eventually beating you in a debate about something <laughs> other than how valuable our careers are last week and yeah i think you wiped the floor with me last oof, week to be honest I'm, I'm not entirely sure i did but we will we will leave it to our listener uh whoever you are to to judge that <laughs> this week we wanted to get into checkbook diplomacy if you're not familiar with this concept It is effectively the idea that governments should buy love abroad, that a way that you can conduct diplomacy is by spending money, directing investment, explicitly directing your aid budget, even in ways that begin to, or indeed cross the line into bribery, facilitation payments, whatever you want to call it, effectively having a national policy that says that when we want someone to like us, we should be willing to spend the money to achieve that objective, almost regardless of of what it takes, and even if that's not in a traditional kind of aid model or what have you. Is that a fair definition of checkbook diplomacy, John? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's such a big topic, right? Like so checkbook diplomacy can be kind of what Australia did in, in the 2013s where we said, okay, our aid program is going to be much more aligned with our foreign policy goals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could argue that's checkbook diplomacy, but then it's also as far on the other scale as what, you know, I th- I'm sure we'll talk about this, what China has done through, you know, ostensibly through its Belt and Road Initiative, but the kind of debt de- debt um, debt diplomacy, or, you know, that's probably a bit of a pejorative term, but the idea of loaning countries huge amounts of money to build infrastructure. They're both on the scale of checkbook diplomacy, Um so it's it's a tough it's a tough debate to have and na- and really narrow down. But I think even having a conversation about it will be interesting. I I guess I'm taking the side of that it's not a good mm-hmm. generally not a good thing. But even there, you need to narrow it down. Like not a good thing for who? So I'll be generally just saying it's not a good thing in general for the world, and certainly not for the recipients of the checkbook goods. But I you know I think it's it's a complex issue. I think the first thing I would note is that one of the things that is unsavory i think about checkbook diplomacy is that it never works like it's supposed to it sounds very very good to say we're going to give cash to countries that need it or we're going to you know write write them a loan to build a new airport or to build whatever they need um from from huge projects even to kind of like we're going to give rice to people in you know the the remote parts of a country because they don't get it it's all very well and good when it's drawn up in a capital, but the reality of it is the political systems of other countries are so complex that the actual benefit or much of the benefit goes to the ruling structures, the people who facilitate these things, the private companies in, in many situations, the ruling governments, and they harvest a lot of the cash that comes from taxpayers of countries trying to do good, I, I you know, ideally do good. And retrench or entrench, sorry, not retrench, entrench the systems that have created the problems in the first place. They're actually making, in many cases, the the reasons for the suffering or the underdevelopment or whatever it is, they make the reasons and the structures that allowed that to happen even stronger. So even though I, I, don't, I don't think it's hard, I think it's hard to argue against it being a good thing to give people money when they need it. The reality is just so far away from that, that the whole thing is not worth doing. But I think that in, in a lot of ways, I think that makes my point for me, I'm going to be attacking uh, attacking the argument that we shouldn't be doing checkbook diplomacy, that we should be sort of making decisions without necessarily thinking about how to buy influence. And I think what you're describing is kind of part of the failure of what we're doing now. So what we are trying to do, if you look at uh, the development policies of Western governments, if you look at sort of the investment policies and so on, we are trying to objectively pursue development objectives, whether that is feeding people who need rice in the emergency, or whether that is investing in redoing a port somewhere, offering someone a discount loan. And as you say, in a lot of cases, we end up just enriching and entrenching the existing power structures. And at the same time, we are not necessarily achieving our foreign policy objectives of creating lasting alliances or a sense of kind of obligation or quid pro quo with those power structures that like it or not are in charge and potentially now even more entrenched. So on the one hand, we have this development programs, investment programs that are supposed to be blind and sort of just doing what is right and good. And we're not achieving that according to your first point. But at the same time, and this is what I think made me think of this topic, you and I were both in the department when the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade 
was merged with Australian aid. Yeah. And the explicit rationale in the one and a half page document the government handed down as the only guidance on how to on how two gigantic government departments should mush together was the goal is to align Australian aid policy more closely with Australian government foreign policy objectives. So clearly we have the objective of pursuing, of using aid to achieve our foreign policy objectives. And according to your first point, we're not really achieving that or achieving this kind of global public good by not doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think two... Three things there. One, the first is to say, I mean, I think it's indicative, not, it's not a slam dunk argument, but it's indicative of remembering how our aid colleagues kicked and screamed and said, this will undermine worthy aid projects. So like, I think that's at least um, circumstantial evidence that they, the people who know what they're doing and are very good at it, some of the best in the world, really Australian aid, saying like, this will make aid less effective. It will make it worse by aligning it with, you know, by making it checkbook diplomacy mm-hmm it will make it less effective as what it's supposed to do. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, yeah, I, I think that most, maybe you and I, and I, I this is difficult because I don't know enough about worldwide kind of aid slash debt diplomacy mm-hmm. in the sense of extending loans to countries, sovereign loans, I guess. I don't know enough about it to say this with authority, but it strikes me that it, it, currently in the world, most of that kind of behavior by individual countries is done in alliance with their foreign policy. You know, you can argue that some of the multinational bodies do it much more without strings or much more without kind of foreign policy mm-hmm. goals. But most countries, I think now, don't just say our aid program is divorced from anything else and they kind of operate as just like a government charity. Um, and I and I think that 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 it, that speaks volumes that what we're seeing around the world now is that like a lot of it is is getting chewed up in places or by people that we don't want it to get chewed up by. Now, of course, that's inevitable. Like, I'm not saying that there's a perfect solution here, but it does strike me that when you bring, a, like when you overtly bring politics into it from your side and, and and government politics and policies into it from your side, then it's, you know, it's almost certainly going to be involved on the recipient side as well. There's mm-hmm. very little arguments that you can make to say, we're just going to give money directly to the people, which I think is what I'm arguing for. The third thing I would say, and, and this is where I think the, the strongest argument against explicitly having the money you give abroad sort of tied to the furtherance of your national goals is, I mean, you know, we always love to talk about it, but it's China, right? And it's, it's these massive loans that they've, they've extended, you know, right around the world. You know, we can get into talk about that more deeply because there's a lot of misinformation about that too, but they active, their loans actively work against making things better in a lot of places. Like now in Pakistan, they have extended so much money to the Pakistanis that the IMF won't bail Pakistan out because the Chinese loans are so well, so large and they're fairly high commercial terms. The Chinese don't loan at mm-hmm. like 1%. It's like 4 5 6%. Um, and the IMF won't deal with an economy when it says, well, the money we give you is going to go to servicing Chinese loans. We're not going to do that. So the result is Pakistan is in a materially worse place than it would have been arguably without the loans in the first place. So that like not only are they not helping in the way they hoped, they're making it potentially worse. All right, let me deal with, I think, the first two points and then the last point, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, a bit different, yeah. On the first two points, I guess, again, I feel like that just supports my argument. We have a situation where at the moment... (laughs) This is going to get tedious if you're just like, I agree, John, you're supporting my argument. (laughs) 
Well, listen, uh, we're all on tape Dimitri <laughs> at the end of the day. But the the complaint the aid colleagues had was, and it's very legitimate, is that you are going to force us to compromise the developmental approach that we have taken to spending Australian aid money abroad uh, by forcing it to align with foreign policy objectives that in some cases are really short term and don't make for good aid projects. John, you and I wrote an article for uh, yeah. uh, back in the day when the UK was merging to, to this very argument. So we have a situation now where I think if you put to the Australian government that they are doing checkbook diplomacy, they would be outraged by that suggestion. Mm. So what we have is a situation now where on the one hand, we are saying we don't do checkbook diplomacy. Our diplomacy, like all of our projects are just good development projects. All we're trying to do is do good developmentally sound projects that happen to align with where the government wants them to go and the objectives they have. But then on the other hand, we're saying, you know, we have a, these aid projects have to be driven by foreign policy. So in a lot of ways, we're, we've got the worst of both worlds. We're not ruthlessly using money to buy love, but we're also not doing aid in a foreign policy, politics, divorced way, where we're just going, where can we have the most impact? Forget what Canberra wants to achieve this week. Forget where the upcoming visit of the prime minister is. Just we have four billion, four and a half billion. Effectiveness of the cash is the is the overarching goal then, right? Right. So, so, we, so we're kind of, we're doing neither. Yeah. We're kind of, we're not doing either properly. So I guess my question on that is, let's stop pretending Let's take however much money we are comfortable with spending purely for improving the world Charity, and basically. put it in a politics blind fund, yeah. like like an Auszade that sort of re reports to government but isn't driven by it day to day, and then mm -hmm. take another pot of money that is for buying love and achieving foreign policy objectives, put that under kind of a DFAT-like structure, and let that be spent without kind of every decision having to go through designing a logical framework and how does this align with the SDGs, the sustainable development goals that is, and you know, how does this what will be the impact of this over 15 years? Let's just let's just have a slush fund. If that's if what we want to do is buy love, let's just go and buy some love and we can try to do it in a in a smart way and we can put some guardrails around it. But let's not try to do two things at the same time and screw them both up is kind of my pitch on on that one i don't know if you want to come back on that no i think i think that's a fair dichotomy and i would just say that second one where you're talking about a slush fund i think that's what what i'm talking about much more with china obviously slush mm. fund and, and giant bri is they're not quite the same but they are kind of the same in the sense that this is for China, that is a fund that is designed to ostensibly help countries build infrastructure and develop their countries. You know, I'm simplifying a lot because the Belt and Road Initiative is a lot more than that. Um, and some of the stuff they do in Africa isn't on the Belt and Road, but I'm just using it as like a yep, catch-all sure. term. Um, but it is a giant slush fund for China to say, here's a lot of money that can can bribe, can grease palms, can give contracts to Chinese firms. But overall, it'll make the world better because this stuff wouldn't get built without it. And my argument to that would be it it doesn't work. It's It's counterproductive or at least problematic at best. And I guess what I would say to that, and that's what I wanted to come back on the BRI point, yeah. is there's an effectiveness angle here and there is an implementation angle here. 
on the effectiveness point, you know, you spoke about Pakistan and this kind of loan indenture they have to, to China and how that's causing them all sorts of problems. You could argue that while that is almost certainly causing uh, a lot of anger in Pakistan towards China for the terms of these loans, it is also handing China a tremendous amount of power over Pakistan in that China could cancel, defer, or restructure those loans. That is fundamentally in the Chinese hands. And so now you have Pakistan, which is a really important country, hugely strategically significant in the region, that now is effectively beholden to the Chinese, who can dictate terms to an extent, especially if the IMF is now not willing to touch Pakistan. Well, I just, I, I, well, we'll come back to it, but I think I, I'd put a pin in that argument and say, in theory, yes, but in reality, I don't think China, I think what China's learning very quickly is that indebtedness and, you know, tentacles into another country's politics doesn't necessarily mean you have mm. bought influence and can control them. Sri Lanka is a perfect example of that, you know, huge indebtedness, giant white elephant literally this is interesting very literally white elephant airport project that is so unused that elephants actually walk across the tarmac because it is such a such a waste of money but like what happened there well Sri Lankan people rose up booted out the pro-Chinese guy who did all that stuff and now there's a government in Sri Lanka that you know isn't anti-China but is probably a lot less under their sway so I, I, I would only just put a pin in that argument to say I agree with you in theory, and that's how you draw it up. But the reality is, not only do you waste a lot of cash in de- put, you know, destroy a country's economy, but you don't even get the influence afterwards. It's, it's, I think that's a really interesting point. It's fascinating to contrast when I was at the the WTO in sort of the 14, 14 15, 16, 17, mm. hearing all of the interventions from African governments that were basically thanking China for in absolutely glowing terms for the latest highway, the latest port project that had just been announced. And there was this, as a Western government sitting there, our perception was like, oh my God, we've we've lost. Forever. Holy shit, yeah. Like, yeah, we've, exactly. we've lost we've lost Africa, most of Latin America and all of Asia. This is, They've beaten us. And you don't get that as much, nearly as much anymore. So I think that that does speak to your argument. Yeah. And that's and that's the lesson of American intervention around the world, right? Like you can spend, you know, trillions of dollars rebuilding Afghanistan for twenty years, but you still at the at the end of the at the end of the. I mean, it's different because they went in there, obviously. But you know, Americans have put Americans put a lot of money into a lot of places in the world, and you don't have to go far to find people who dislike Americans. It's an interesting point you make there, because in some ways it preempts my point. Because what I was going to say is, is it a question that like Belt and Road? was inherently a poor way to buy influence? Or was this just China had never attempted anything like this before? It has never really managed anything on this scale in terms of abroad. It was a massively ambitious thing that, as we have always said on this podcast, guys, just remember dictatorships aren't as good at doing stuff as they would like you to believe. And they are especially not very good at course correcting. And they're really not very good at detecting corruption, uh, Mm -hmm. which is inevitable in projects like this. So there is a question of, do the challenges that BRI is currently facing prove that a checkbook diplomacy model can't work? Or is it evidence that simply the Chinese overreached or didn't, didn't kind of think, didn't execute it well? 
And the reason that I kind of think this is there was a recently talks between the Brazilians and the Chinese. And the the Brazilian government was absolutely glowing in praise of the Chinese. And a lot of the analysis said was, this is happening because China is willing to pour investment capital into rebooting Brazilian manufacturing in a way that the West isn't. So so clearly, clearly there is there is this sense of pay for play and buying friends and affection. Like clearly it does. We know it works a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I'm not going to sit here and argue that people who need investment aren't going to say nice things about people who've got a lot of money. Uh, I, I just think that it's not as it's not a thing that you can re- a rely on being durable, b being legitimate, and c it doesn't really say it doesn't really do anything. You're not getting much for your money, and you know, apart from the fact that it's incredibly cynical to kind of be like, "Oh, we're trying to improve a country," and you know, the only goal being really to you know extract diplomatic benefits. And and again, I want to stress that I think there's a spectrum of this stuff, right? Like there's there is aligning in the way that you said aid or or foreign spending with foreign policy goals of like we would like a secure region, so we're going to help build police forces across the border. That that feels more benign than perhaps you know offering giant loans to, to to countries that can't hope to repay them. But I think the the thing that I'm trying to get across is that it, it very rarely works the way you think it's going to work. And as a policy or as a, as a strategy, debt diplomacy or checkbook diplomacy is a huge waste of cash. It doesn't on average help the people that it's going to. It tends to entrench and have unintended consequences in that country's political system and make things worse. And three, it doesn't get you a lot of bang for your buck. Now, does it get you nothing? Of course not. I mean, you know, there's there's no doubt that if you've got a checkbook, you can buy influence. But as a general policy, I would say it's a deeply ineffective one. And, and China's learning that the hard way. I think your point of Africa, the, the Africa example you used, which was all across the media, right? Like how the Kenyan politicians were so thrilled at the, the train line and whatnot. But Yes, it gets you influence until they change government, until the things change, until the infrastructure breaks down, until the debts become due. And then it can actually go the other way. Like a thought experiment, would Pakistan feel more positively towards China if they weren't in huge debt to them and China was saying, pay us back, than if China had never even done it at all? Like I would argue that yes, the absence of and it's almost like the relationship they have with China is more negative because now it's one of debtor, creditor versus like neighbor that, you know, doesn't necessarily agree, but, you know, we work together and we respect each other. That that relationship has been turned into a power relationship, which I would argue is worse, at least from a diplomacy perspective. Uh, somebody in the chat actually is asking, what, what do you think will happen with Hamburg Harbor, which has just been bought by a Chinese company, which I think kind of speaks to the the other side of the coin, where the power relationship isn't as overt and it's more of a commercial relationship. I don't think you know I don't think Hamburg is going to get into the same kind of trouble as Pakistan did with its loans. No, but uh, I think to, to your overall to your overall question again, for me, that is a failure by the Chinese to play this out to the end. If they had offered those same if they had offered those loans under more generous terms, if they had uh, approached this kind of transaction with a long-term view of making it a positive one, I feel like they could have done that. If anything, the problem with these loans is that they are insufficiently checkbook diplomacy. 
in that the loans that they are offering are at, I don't know if they're commercial rates, but a 4% interest rate is... 4 5%, yeah. 4 or 5% interest rates. You're basically talking about like a commercial... You're, you're talking about commercial rates. That's not... At that point, that's not even checkbook diplomacy. That's a fund. Yeah, IMF lens or like generally like international monetary fund lens at like like one and a half, two percent two and a half percent like around that rate. So it's double almost. So if anything, one could make the case that BRI was insufficiently checkbook diplomacy in that it wedded uh, these kind of things that were treated initially as gifts or as the largesse of the Chinese with quite sort of overt commercial terms, either for purely commercial reasons or on the calculus that, as you say, they could buy influence by holding debt over countries. And you can argue, you know, I think I've made the case why that could be a source of strength. You've made a really strong case why that can be a source of weakness or, or distrust. But does that prove checkbook diplomacy is is flawed? Well, I think I also think we're talk, we're we're being a little bit too general with the Chinese case because I think one important thing is to note that a lot of those Chinese loans aren't necessarily directed by the government. They are, you know, I think some of the some of the some of the Trump era rhetoric was that, you know, oh this is a very clear plan by Xi Jinping to kind of trap countries into debt. And I I think the evidence since then has suggested that it's mostly a network of very rich Chinese banks loaning money in a loosely coordinated way, but without any kind of like overarching, like nefarious purpose from the Chinese government, that now that the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese economy is, is in dire straits, that that's why they're kind of not taking a haircut on those loans. So, you know, I, I think we have to be a bit fair to China and sort of say, to your point, I agree that it's not necessarily a failure of checkbook diplomacy because it probably wasn't strategically meant as checkbook diplomacy in the first place. It was probably private loans that had a nice little benefit to the government, but now that they've gone pear-shaped, have a little bit of a problem for the government. Uh, and to and to, the, to whoever wrote about the Hamburg port, I think that's probably a good counterpoint is that you're probably dealing with far more sophisticated um, individuals in the Hamburg port negotiations, um, people who, you know, understand and have the political ability to push back on China a bit more uh, and B, that aren't as corrupt. So like, you know, things aren't going to get waved through. They're not going to be able to take a loan over the Darwin port or the Hamburg port by greasing, you know, the transport minister's palms for five million pounds in Pakistan or across Africa, not to cast aspersions, but that stuff happens all the time. So I think, yeah, I think I think it is fair to say that none of those things are slam dunk bits of evidence that checkbook diplomacy doesn't work. But I would say that I think the assumption that if you give people money or if you give governments money or you give countries money because it it, it will make your country look better or be able to achieve some of its foreign policy aims or get access for your businesses, that that is not a particularly effective way of going about things. And if we're talking about getting aid money in there to make people's lives better, it is certainly not an effective way of doing things. So... The way you split it up before, which was basically have a bunch of NGOs that the government gives, uh, you know, a bunch of money to every year and says, go and spend this money in the most effective way. That takes care of the aid side of things if that's what you want to do with your money. But the idea then that you have a slush fund, well, I don't know. I mean, again, in a democratic country, I would be making a very strong argument that that's a huge waste of taxpayer dollars. It's interesting. It's interesting that you kind of say that. Um because it's effectively an effectiveness argument rather than uh, like an ethics or morality argument. You're basically saying that if I have a if I have a mission in a democratic country, I'm in 
Austria, uh, there is nothing that I could, or there is predominantly nothing that I could do with some money to throw around whoever I wanted to do it um, that would significantly advance the foreign policy objectives of my country. And I'm a little bit less certain that that's necessarily the case, especially once we're talking about significant amounts of funds. Though I think six to one, six to one in Pickham, I, I take your point. I can't, I'm not a hundred percent certain on that, but I guess a, a good way to finish up is to, is to pose this question to you. Let's set the effective, like the direct effectiveness question aside. Let's say there was an opportunity hmm. to achieve a, let's even say a short-term foreign policy objective through a investment of funds. So literally, let's take a hypothetical Pacific island. If we could build the long-serving prime minister who has no viable opposition, a new house, if that could significantly swing that island towards uh, Australian interests, is it, do you think that that is, is worth doing or that is worth exploring? Yeah, see, I mean, you, you've raised an issue that probably is a huge issue uh, about aligning moralities mm -hmm. with your kind of country's systems and your pitch to the world. Um, it is always a very tempting thing to say that, but it is a race to the bottom of a zero-sum game if you start doing that because we will never be able to spend more money more corruptly than other, or other countries in our region um, the big one to the north. Uh, and, you know, it's we have laws on the books in Australia that won't get changed because of the nature of our country and the nature of our legal system that will make us much less effective at doing that stuff, much less able to do that stuff. And, and politicians and bureaucrats get in trouble if they do that stuff. But even if I say, okay, we're going to make it legal, we're never, we don't know how to do it. We're not going to be able to do it effectively. And the minute you start engaging it, You've immediately lost your argument, which I think is a powerful one of, we don't do that. If you deal with us, you know what you're going to get. We don't engage in bribery. We have legal systems. And yeah, sure, you might want a new house. But you know, the next time that you want help, we'll send police to help you quell a riot. And you know that there won't be a quid pro quo coming behind it because that's not how we operate. We're good faith operators. And now you're right. Maybe that's not compelling for strong men in the region and you got to take your lumps. But it's a meta game and it's a repeated like game theory situation that in the long run, if you build a reputation for trust and above board dealing, and I'm painting it at its highest here, but that's the goal. Then over time you have to trust that that means that you'll be a more reliable partner partner. And when it comes down to it, people trust you. And what you see in the Pacific, it's a great example is that people want the cash from China, but they don't want to partner with China because they go, you know, they understand, I think that it comes with, you know, strings attached. What those strings are, they don't know. But it doesn't. It, it's a it's a commercial transaction one off rather than a trusting relationship. And I think that is a is a clearly worse foreign policy to have a foreign policy built on transactional zero sum interactions uh, rather than kind of trust and relationships. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I think if you're listening at home, the crux of this debate really comes down to whether you think what John has just laid out will be enough. Yeah, that's right. Am I naive, basically? Yeah. Yeah. Is John being naive there? Will this sense of fair play, values, whatever you want to, whatever self-aggrandizing terms sure. we want to pile on top of our bureaucratic ethics, will it be enough 
when faced with a geostrategic adversary that is willing to spend cash, but then has to wear wear the reputation, uh, as John said, of a transactional partner. I agree. That's the crux of it. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, A fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Intrigue Explained with Dimitri Grosbinski and John Fowler. As always, we would love it if you rated this podcast, if you gave us a subscribe, and if you wrote to us on Twitter or anywhere else uh, and let us know what we should debate next time, whether you violently disagree with what we've said. We live for the feedback and it's always hugely, hugely helpful. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to International Intrigue. It's free, it's excellent, and it saves me from ever having to read anything else. <laughs> oh boy, that's a... I worry. I worry for you. <laughs> <laughs> I worry for me too, John. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, everyone.